Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, I'm Dean, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and I study uh, religion and media and technology and this podcast. That's a good brand. That's the best brand <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm Matt. I work at Greenville University. I, I teach media studies and communication there. My research interests are, I don't know, media archaeology, ghosts, uh, pizza, and uh, I like thinking about class struggle. Oh, dang. You're, that's, uh, my, that's my new brand, my evolving brand. It's a good one. It's a very brand. brand. you got to give me some brand evolving. Uh, yeah, uh, bu- buzzwords, hashtags, <laughs> Monet- monetization. <laughs> hashtag uh, spooky pizza, hashtag uh, class struggle. Yeah, man, all that good stuff right there. Got to get it on uh, front-loaded. SEO, that's another one. Think about that word. <laughs> uh, when are they going to have um, like uh, emoji uh, search engine optimization? Wait, how would that work? I don't know, man. Like, uh, if you're, you know, if you use a lot of spooky pizza emojis, maybe that's the kind of thing someone's into. Oh, so you could like search people by uh, by emoji. Yeah, frequency, you know, deliberate combinations, that sort of thing. It's just brand yeah. building. Yeah, if you if you think about it. Okay, <laughs> I'm not gonna think uh, about it. That is a one million dollar idea out there. So uh, somebody, give us that money. Yeah, or <laughs> uh, do it, and we'll litigate you later. Or do it, and we'll probably just ignore it. Yeah, we'll forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Uh, Well, last week we tried to think through the events of Charlottesville, especially the violence of white supremacy and strategies for anti-fascism. That means, though, that we have a bunch of listener stuff piled up that we haven't gotten to in a while, and some uh, Christianity and Socialism 101 stuff to talk about. This week we've got iTunes reviews, but also, uh, believe it or not, some real-life voicemails. People actually took us up on this and called us and left us questions. That's <laughs> wild. Thank you so Very much impressive. for doing that. <laughs> well, so after we, uh, after we go through those, um, we'll move on and talk about um, Revolution and what Marx thinks about them. So this is sort of like a 101 on Revolutions episode. Uh, so if you don't know anything about Marx and Revolutions, like, I guess, get ready. Because you're gonna. We're gonna force it. <laughs> we're gonna force it into your brain. Unless you turn this off, then we can't. Um, so we'll also talk about revolutions, I guess, from a Christian perspective, because again, that's part of our brand that we are building and monetizing: SEO, hashtags, etc. Um, and uh, we'll even get a little help uh, from our friendly neighborhood Litkert guy to uh, tell us about uh, Marx's theory of revolution. Cool. So uh, before we do that, though, let's just like talk and see. You see what we've been up to <laughs> dean what have you been doing <laughs> uh yesterday uh or recently anyway i went to a corn boil that was really cool uh it is what it sounds like uh, a place that boiled corn uh emily is a nanny uh and she used to work for this family and they do this corn boil every year and that was very good so uh yep ate ate a lot of corn with some very fancy butter uh that was the key the fancy butter is what makes all the difference uh thai lemongrass butter that was uh the winner of the night i think um literally the wildest thing i've ever heard in my entire life yeah man corn boil it's like uh (laughs) like a very midwestern version of like a crab boil or something yeah exactly but in the middle of the city so very funny um right also uh, a, a cool thing that happened though cooler than the corn boil dare i say is uh, I hung out with this guy named Hank Hart all day today with my supervisor, Ron Kuypers at ICS. And uh, Hank Hart is basically the guy who founded my school, more or less. 
Um, but he is in his 80s and extremely cool. Um, and I like talked to him a bunch about teaching and how he used to teach briefly in South Africa, like before apartheid was over. Um, and that was wild. <laughs> yeah, so man. That was really neat. Yikes. Cool. That sounds like a good time. Yeah, I mean, apartheid was not neat, but... No, 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 no. but hang out with uh, Hankai is cool. Yeah. No, apartheid uh, is uh, the opposite. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one one very good story that I should share is... Uh, he's telling me the story of giving this lecture, um, some, like, boring philosophy lecture, about uh, the truth, and Hankart is a pragmatist. Um, so he was talking about, whatever, pragmatism and truth, and he was like, yeah, so pragmatists, like, we say uh, the truth is a thing that you do. And he said, after that, a bunch of people came up to him, and they were like, so you really think the truth is something we do? And he said, yeah, sure, like, that's that's my research. And he left, and then uh, that night, they burned down the uh, place that he gave the lecture at uh, and destroyed it um, on the premise that, like, that was the, the truth, speaking justice, uh, to burn down, like, a, you know, institution in protest of apartheid. And he was like, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. <laughs> so <laughs> kudos to Hank Hart for inciting uh, massive property damage by uh, giving a philosophy lecture. Uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, what have you been up to, Matt? Corn boils in your recent past? Uh, 80-year-old philosophers? What's going on with you? Surprisingly, no corn boils. Hey, so uh, this actually happened last week, but we didn't do this. We didn't include this in the episode last week, so I want to make sure everyone hears it because I think it's a very a good story. Um, maybe <laughs> it's not a good story, but it's a story about my life. So, here it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, good. So, um, my wife and I were included in a workplace outing, which was uh, horrifying. Um, it was a very, <laughs> it was a very bad time. Um, it was okay. Let me let me clarify. It was a very like we got to eat and hang out with people, and eating and hanging out is very good, and I don't mind that part at all. But after we ate and hung out. Um, we had to see a Christian comedian, uh, <laughs> and that was very bad. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know you know all about this already. But I'll just I'll just say it again because maybe you don't follow me on Twitter. Maybe you should though because I need to get to a thousand real soon. Anyways, so we go to this Christian comedian, and it's in like a it's a in a very small town, and it's in like uh the small town's um like junior high auditorium. So it's uh the seats are way too small for normal sized people. And it's also, like, very sweaty. And I don't know if that's <laughs> part of the middle school or if it's just, like, it's hot out. I don't know which. That's just um, a, a time in people's lives to be sweaty for the first time. It's just, like, yeah, uh, that's the best idea, actually, is making a middle school intentionally sweaty. Um, <laughs> doing everyone a favor there. Uh, anyways, so this, like, comedian starts. And, like, I don't know. It's a Christian comedian, so I knew, like, going into it, it's, like, this is probably not going to be very funny. Um, or if it is, it's just like, whatever, not very like good, funny stuff. Uh, anyway, so the guy starts off and it's like exactly what you'd expect from a Christian comedian. Like, oh man, isn't it weird that Baptists do this? And oh man, isn't it weird that Nazarenes do this? That's my Southern uh, Illinois voice, by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) anyways, so like, yeah, it is weird that Baptists do that. Whoa. So, so funny. And then, um, and then like he told the joke about Hobby Lobby. Um, y'all like Hobby Lobby. Everyone was like, yeah, we love it. We love Hobby Lobby. <laughs> we hate um, contraceptives. Yeah, I know, right? Like, that was basically <laughs> it. Um, and then he started making these, like, really, um, like, increasingly more offensive jokes. And, like, I like to think of myself as someone who can take a lot of 
unfunny and very offensive material and i think i am one of those type of people but i also just like didn't want to deal with it and i was very annoyed by <laughs> it okay um so he started making these jokes about how like um people who work minimum wage jobs like don't actually deserve more money uh and that's like not that's not actually a very funny joke because uh that's like i don't know misanthropic and classist and like very stupid and also Uh, very ironic coming from a christian comedian at a middle school yeah i know right um like if anyone doesn't (laughs) deserve money for what they're doing it's actually him (laughs) yeah i agree with you uh, what was really annoying to me was he, so he kept making these jokes. I was like, "Well, do you do you really think the guy at the Taco Bell drive-through deserves more money?" And it's like, "Well, I mean, yeah, probably. I don't know." <laughs> and it's also and it's just also weird because the only the only person the only job he could mention that made minimum wage were like fast food workers. And if that if that <laughs> dude thinks that the only people that make minimum wage are fast food workers, he is living on another planet. Oh, that's so <laughs> dumb. Christian planet. Uh, yeah, the Christian planet, uh, Hobby Lobby planet. <laughs> they got a they got a a belt of uh, Christian knickknacks that float around the planet like rings. Yeah, yeah, it's a Christian planet sponsored by Hobby Lobby, uh, also sponsored <laughs> by Chick Fil A. Oh my God, that sounds terrible. Okay, so that was an annoying joke, and my wife looked at me at that moment, and she's like, "Do you want to go?" And I was just like let's just stay because like i don't know we're with like people she works with and it's like how weird would that be if we just left so anyways we stayed for a little bit longer and then he said <laughs> he got like really misanthropic in his in like his comedy routine got really misanthropic and he was just like oh man people are so dumb right like uh oh, people uh they're just so stupid you know, i remember that in the gospels actually yeah jesus is like dude people are idiots Get a lot of these guys. <laughs> and then, like, uh, well, anyway, so he's like talking about how stupid people are, and making these like kind of stupid, I don't know, jokes, whatever. And he, anyways, then he like, then he says this like this thing that's supposed to be shocking and edgy, but it was really just in bad taste. So then he's just like, man, I wish we would just really go to war with North Korea. Um, and, 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 he, and like specifically said like nuclear war like wasn't a bad idea, like so that like some of the stupid people would die. Um. That's like the that was like the implication, right? And like then I looked at my wife and I was like, "All right, now I'm ready to go." Like this is just <laughs> this is too much. Um anyway, so it was a really unfortunate like sort of comedy set. I don't want to I don't want to mention his name because I don't want to like um I don't know. I don't know if there's drama that can result in that. Anyways, if you want to know who he is, just look at my Twitter account from a few weeks ago. You can find <laughs> out. Um but all in all, I mean, pretty on brand for uh, Christians, I guess. Uh, first of all, like making stupid jokes, hating people, and being pro-war. I guess that's uh, very on brand. But uh, it was a super annoying night, and uh, we ate ice cream afterwards, and it was good. So at least we got ice cream. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I'm glad there's a happy ending. I appreciate that you included that detail, because that would have been a huge bummer with that. Right. No, I mean, so we got ice cream, though, so it's cool. But Christian comedians, can you just stop? Like... Could you just not? <laughs> could you not do it anymore? Oh, oh my God! Okay, so this is the best part. This might actually give away who he is if you follow Christian comedians. Uh, his tagline <laughs> is: "His tagline is, I'm not praying for that." Like, uh, <laughs> like uh, the idea is awesome. that like people ask you to pray for stupid stuff, and he's just like, "I'm not." He has like this whole like sort of like Jeff Foxworthy kind of situation where he's like, "I'm not. Pl- I'm not praying for that," and like. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I wish like, I had what? a job that didn't pay minimum wage. I'm not praying for that. I wish <laughs> I didn't die in a nuclear holocaust. I'm not praying for that. I'm just not doing it. Uh, yeah, so Christian <laughs> comedians could just stop. Could just stop contributing to the badness and evil in the world. 
because uh, you're part you're part of it and probably you're responsible for most of it honestly uh anyways i'm gonna i'm gonna see if we can get this guy in, on the show under sort of some like pretenses <laughs> and then just tear him uh, a new one we need to get him and uh derek ford on the show uh oh because derek uh just went to the dprk uh by the way that's exciting shout out to derek for uh, super exciting bringing a bunch of cool photographs back that was really neat um, yeah uh, if you don't, you should follow Derek on Twitter and look at all the neat pictures and videos and commentary he gave because it's super fascinating. Um, yeah, it is. Holy cow. Lots of good stuff to think of. I mean, if you are a person who is really, um, I don't know, uh, interested in anti-imperialism, uh, first of all, you should be. And anyways, if you're interested in that <laughs> kind of thing, you should look at these these pictures because they um, tell you a lot, I think, about the DPRK and sort of the ways that American or U.S. media uh trashes it so check those out anyways it'd be great to have those people talk because uh this yeah because derek is um straight um so matt i hear that we have some itunes reviews oh yeah we got two reviews two new reviews um if it's not clear to you you guys need to leave us reviews on iTunes with five stars only. Um, and that'll make us, that'll make it better. Just in general, that'll make the show better. Um, That's true. Because more people will see it. I don't know. I think iTunes pays attention to this kind of stuff. So um, good reviews helps us out. If you have, if you have a bad review, maybe just keep that to yourself. Uh, yeah, you don't have to help us with that one, actually. Nah, you could. I mean, constructive criticism is great, but not on iTunes. So just keep it to yourself, and maybe I mean you could message us or whatever and tell us. Send us too. a one star email. Yeah, that's right, a one star email. Um, but just if you got something good to say, get that on iTunes. Um, okay, so here's here's the first review. This is a little bit old. <laughs> They're both a little bit old, but I don't know. Sorry, <laughs> we we've, we've been doing other stuff. Okay, so uh, the first review is a five out of five star review by username Speedizzle. Or speed izzle or speed dizzle. I can't really tell. Uh, I miss. I messed up. Uh, I messed up Caleb Butler's name, so I'll probably mess up this person's name too. But it's unconventional. So what can you say? Um, all right. So speed dizzle on July twenty seventh, two thousand seventeen says, "Hey Dean, hey Matt, just stopped by to give you my first ever podcast review. Thank you. That's good. Um, That's good. Podcast reviews are important. Again, let me reemphasize." Um, okay, Ben Searchin left his podcast for a more religious, religious take and have listened to just about every Elizabeth Brunig guest slot on a variety of podcasts. Nice. Okay, cool. Um, and, uh, okay, uh, at Daniel J. Camacho tweeted about this guest stint. I downloaded the podcast and have been very impressed with what I've heard so far. Good, so far. Uh, just wait f- till you get to the first episode. Those feelings will go right away. Yeah, I mean, everyone hates that universally. Or we do, at least. <laughs> uh to be fair i have not listened to the earlier episodes which apparently have earned a bad reputation (laughs) on this review board yup yeah we don't like them no one likes them they're all bad you can't hear it whatever it's the first episode what do you get that's just how it is um okay i really appreciate the framework and analysis you provide to christian left issues particularly as they intersect with our culture with our current world as the grandchild of liberation theology ministers from latin america that is cool as hell oh my god i like that yeah you should have Uh, a podcast yeah no kidding probably more interesting (laughs) than us um anyways it's a it's uh fantastic to see you out spreading the good news of a christian practice uh christian praxis rooted in solidarity with the poor yeah 
I hope you continue your podcast and look forward to joining your reading group. Uh, we're going to have more in the future. Keep it, keep an eye out. Uh, if you would be so inclined, I'd love to hear a current minister's take on liberation, etc. I don't think either of you are ordained. Nope, not even a little bit. No. Um, in particular, I'd like to see you take on James Cohn and its current relevance with Black Lives Matter. Anyways, for uh, this messy leftist Christian, your podcast has been a great find. Would highly recommend to whomever is open uh, both the Christianity and left slash center left politics. Thanks. Would love to talk with you more. Um, cool. Thank you so much. Uh, if you want a James Cohn episode, I mean, that would be cool. I'd be very into it. Uh, you should start off, though, listening to the uh, Maria Shea Armstrong episode we did a few days back, a few weeks back. That's right. Uh, she <laughs> mentions James Cohn, but has a very good, um, I don't know, similar kind of thing going on. Cool. That was a very nice review. Yeah, that's a good... Uh upbeat encouraging uh word so more of those please yeah uh okay we have one more is it okay if i read the second one yeah let's do that okay so this is um this is also a five-star review so that's very good this one's called uh good find five to five stars by jacob jacob says a great resource filling a void in the podcast verse um like like universe but podcast first okay no, uh, not only are we, we're not speaking into the void, we're filling one. Just, we're just there. Uh, and he says, he says, uh, <laughs> Jacob says, uh, thanks to you both. That was nice, short, and sweet. Yeah, uh, this could be interpreted a few ways, I think, right? Um, we're, just, we're filling a void. Like, all all this person's really saying is, like, first of all, thank you, and then also, you're filling a space. So, it's not like... It's just a cosmic problem. It's like a physics problem. Right. It's not like, hey, this is great content. It's like, hey, you exist and I appreciate it. Yeah. So finally, somebody uh, somebody <laughs> finally filled this up. I was really upset about it. And uh, I can rest easy now going to bed knowing that that particular void has finally been filled. Sort of one more piece of the puzzle being filled in. <laughs> Just doing our part. Just doing our part to create the totality of knowledge. iTunes reviews are very good. Uh, please send us more of those. But also uh, a thing that is very good is uh, voicemails. Uh, we set up this voicemail inbox a long time ago, and we were asking and asking and asking people to send us stuff. And uh, two people did in the same week. And then we had to uh, wait because a bunch of stuff happened and the Charlottesville thing happened. And so now we're finally getting back to them. Uh, so that's pretty great. Um, do you want to, uh, Matt, do you want to just uh, roll it? Roll that. Beautiful bean footage. Hi, Dean and Matt. This is Drew Vantland. Um, I just wanted to thank you for your recent episode on morality. Um, it's got me thinking um, kind of more on some things that have been on my mind lately about progressivism, leftism, radicalism, and um, ethics. So the first thing I was wondering is, um, don't progressives already take kind of a moral stance towards political issues? Um, and maybe isn't that part of the problem in terms of thinking strategically? I'm thinking of meme culture in particular. Um, I think we're really good at putting together incisive, uh, you know, satirical but moral pithy arguments in uh, service of political ends, um, which gets us accused of, you know, being bleeding heart liberals versus, you know, a rational, hard-headed conservative uh, mindset. So that's my first thought is um, – is this something new? Isn't this something we're doing already? My second thought was, um, what is the ethical perspective that's being adopted um, in certain sectors of the left? 
Um, it sometimes seems confused to me. Um, my own ethical take is certainly um, kind of a confusing morass I'm still trying to work through. But what I sense a lot of times in progressivism is some kind of utilitarian principle um, mingled with care ethic rhetoric that nonetheless kind of bleeds over into deontological judgment of individual motives. Um, and then finally, I'm wondering about some moral ambiguity regarding like systemic versus individual issues. Um, I have quest um, some questions about agency when it comes to the causal circle between individuals and society. Um, and then the distinction between politics and ethics um, more generally, the difference between justice, um, obligations, and social issues versus more of a individual um, kind of supererogatory self-giving, kind of above and beyond just the norms of what we owe to others. So those are some of my thoughts. Thanks so much for thinking through these things carefully and thoughtfully. Peace. First, uh, cool. It's good to hear from Drew. That's nice that he yeah, called us. Uh, if you don't know, Drew was on the podcast a little while back, um, and this is a great indirect crossover because he's talking about an episode that we did with a guy named Matt Sitman uh, not too long after that. The, the episode that he's referencing, in case you haven't heard it, uh, the one from the episode about Matt Sitman is that uh, Matt wrote a piece for Dissent Magazine saying that the left needs to cultivate a better moral grounding when it comes to, I think, their speech and their actions. Um, uh, Matt's piece focused a lot on like the rhetoric of different people on, on like the like Democrats or people on the left. Um, but I think that Drew's question is pretty interesting. Nonetheless, um, I had to write them down because there were several. Um, <laughs> keeping notes over here, making sure I can get them all. We can get them all. Um, I don't know, Dean, what do you think? So the first question he asked was like, don't progressives or like leftists, um, already take moral stances. Do do that. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, we did ask Matt that question, uh, when he was on the podcast as well. And, uh, he said, yeah, uh, there was like a misleading title in some ways to say that the Democrats have a moral austerity, um, because they do kind of have their own particular morality uh i guess the trouble is like getting into the specifics of that like what are what are the moral or ethical positions of democrats uh i don't know it's not quite clear to me i guess um some kind of vague like don't don't hurt other people kind of stance like you know i don't know if it doesn't bother you then like if it's not hurting anybody then like don't worry about it like that seems to be the kind of general vague principle but uh yeah uh the point the point about them having morals anyway is pretty unassailable i think yeah for sure <laughs> yeah that's true um i think the the question that drew asked that really interests me is the one about meme culture and like the way that people like meme memify um yeah that's right like like um stuff like criticisms of the right get memeified for like easy consumption of people on the left to like kind of um reify certain political positions um and that's really interesting i think um yeah but i'm trying to think of like all of like the very liberal memes i've ever seen in my life and probably a lot uh, to to me, um, my like the lasting impression, the lingering impression I have of like the memification of liberal values, which is I mean a funny phrase to begin with, is that like they're usually like like morally nitpicky and really focused on like low hanging fruit, um, right, right, like I don't know, 
oh man, Donald Trump says the fake, like, media is fake? Well, like, what about him lying about this thing? And it's like, you know, like, fine. Like, that's true. That is, like, a moral point. But it's, like, so, like, minor and, like, rooted in, like, uh, I don't know, um, in such a minor point, it just seems, like, not worth making almost, right? Like, yeah. the, the progressive, uh, like, the, the moral stance that people on the left should take up is, like, um, po- poor people are good and they're, we should <laughs> like, we should give them like the ability to self-determine their lives. Um, they should be in charge of their own labor. They shouldn't have to like, I don't know, um, be in tons of medical debt. Like, like we should care for them. Right. Like that type of that, those type of moral stances aren't the things I see memefied or even taken up by like liberals or progressives. Um, they're so focused on like the, they're so focused on like the personality and like the stupid minutia of acts of like Donald Trump or something to really get into like, um, all people should have the ability to go to the doctor. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Right. Uh, I don't know if you read, um, the itself blog, uh, but Adam Kotzko recently had a post kind of talking with this about this exact problem, um, where the basic, uh, discourse on the right is that liberals are, I don't know, um, you know, talking in some biased bubble that they get sucked in by propaganda, liberal propaganda, the mainstream media, etc. And there's no real critique to be made uh, because it's like so brutally circular. Um, but then liberal uh, kind of discourse, as Adam Kotzko worked it out, is like uh, you just assume that um, everybody is sort of basically liberal. It's just that some of them are extremely stupid and those are Republicans. Uh, and then the rest of them are like enlightened and smart. And those are Democrats. And uh, like, you can't conceive of positions that fall outside of that because the assumption is that if you were very smart, you would like vote for Hillary Clinton or something. Um, and I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, because um, I mean, liberal arguments are always appealing, not always, but are often appealing to sort of like really rational and moral frameworks. And like, if you could just make the smart enough argument, then people would just join right. your side, right? Like, if you could just introduce, um, like, really hard evidence that Donald Trump is, like, really a dumb and hateful guy, then, like, of course conservatives would just join your side. But, like, man, you can't do it because they're not smart enough or something. Yeah, and that's, like, the, what the memes are after, right, is uh, boiling down uh, what liberals think might be complex arguments into their most basic component parts and then just, like, putting them on Facebook and hoping that your, like, uh, conservative aunt sees it and then repents and doesn't vote for Republicans ever again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, on this point, can I just, like, can I inter- interject here um, a quote from somebody I really like? You can. I'll allow it. So this conversation reminds me of something that the... Uh, the popular uh, author Tad Delay. I don't know. I think he's an academic. He wrote a book recently called The Cynic and the Fool. He's like a, a guy that writes about theology and uh, psychoanalysis. I think a lot. Um, not super familiar with him, but I'm Facebook friends with him. So, anyways, he posted this on Facebook, and I think it's a good quote and like worth saying. Um, so Tad Delay says, um, "We'll have to tag him in this too." But anyways, Tad Delay says, "Politics, like religion, is all about enjoyment." And we need to get better at analyzing the counterintuitive locations of that enjoyment. I have family members who support the GOP's health care bill, even though they will almost surely die because of it. Liberals don't get this. Why? As best as I can tell, it's just, uh, it, it isn't just ignorance. To them, the spiteful destruction of the prior administration's legacy is worth the risk. Worth making worse and even dying for. Tell them we have 30-something examples uh, of better health care from which we could modelize after. 
doesn't matter. Cite the pre-ACA death toll and tell them 40,000 um, per year will die from this. It doesn't matter. We are in a war of affects, rage, anxiety, shame, and people. In, uh, what people enjoy wins. Even if, those, even if those wins will surely kill them. Liberals think we are in a battle of smart ideas versus dumb ideas, but that's not how enjoyment or the drive for repetition works. A fundamental and universal lesson of psychoanalysis is that people enjoy their illness. We create in the same uh, we create in the same way that we also destroy. We are sadistic because we are also masochistic. So uh, it's this point that I think is kind of really good here. I think that liberals need to learn that like like the smart idea like have it like good have the smart idea, but like you're not going to win people over based on that smart idea. Like the sh- you're not going to win anyone over trying to show them how much smarter than you. Um, smarter than well and the 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 real irony is that like many liberal ideas are not actually that thought through right um they're just as affective uh as the right it's just that they don't take themselves to be um playing the same game uh and that's really the the illness i guess the liberal illness is that they think that they're extremely smart by uh advocating for like the aca and explicitly not advocating for say single-payer health care or something like that um, yeah. And that's the craziness of it is like a, it isn't it isn't a game of wits. It's still a game of affect on <laughs> yeah. either party or whatever. Yeah, that's right. So um, I don't know. That's what I'd say about like progressive or like <laughs> center left um, like or left leaning liberals or um, like moral positions. Just that um, uh, the moral the morality they're appealing to is about like outsmarting someone when it should be about like enjoyment or some other type of affective desire, because those are the ones that mobilize people. Yeah. Um, just picking up on the last bit of Drew's, uh, voicemail, um, as far as like a specific moral program that is, or should be on the left, uh, like Drew mentioned utilitarianism. Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's something about that in, uh, in certain leftist discourses but i'm not really an ethicist so maybe i shouldn't like talk too much about it because i'll get in trouble by being extremely wrong but uh i guess i I don't really feel like there's a kind of common ethical or moral core at the bottom of uh, the left per se uh I, i guess i just feel like it's more like well um we should abolish private property because like that is clearly not a world that people want to live in. Maybe some people think that that's like on utilitarian grounds. They're like, well, that we should maximize the most justice or something. Maybe some people feel like it's on the grounds of, uh, I don't know, um, like uh, Drew mentioned care ethics or something. Maybe people don't care at all about like utilitarianism. It's just purely, you know, this is the right thing to do or something or deontological or whatever. But I guess, uh, yeah, it just seems to me like there's no real overriding controlling morality underneath. Well, isn't there though? Isn't there like I think that we can locate like at least one ethical goal within leftist ideologies. Like regardless whether or not you're like uh, a communist or an anarchist or whatever, like it seems like the left is basically after like the dignity of all people, <laughs> like to control their own labor and to self-determine their life. Like that's an ethical yeah, claim, isn't it? Certainly an ethical claim, but not an ethical framework in itself. Like, you can oh. get to that ethical claim from a variety of frameworks. Yeah, that's, I see what you're saying. That You're right. That's not a utilitarian value or a deontological value or something. That's just, like, a thing that right. people want. Yeah. It's a value. Well, I don't know. It's a value that people want. Like, that's good. Yeah. But you're right. There's no, like, there's no, like, established way that leftists think about that value or how to achieve that value. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Like, let, let many ethical paradigms bloom, I guess, as long as we abolish private property. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, all right, so we've got uh, we've got a great we we had a great uh, voicemail from Drew, but what else do we have in the in the docket here? Yeah, there's actually two more voicemails uh, from uh, our our good Twitter friend Liam um, at Liam Rules. I think is his Twitter handle. If it's not, nice. Sorry for diluting your brand. Um, <laughs> anyways, there are two, and I think uh, let's listen to them both right quick and see what Liam has to say. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, totally cool. Hey, Magnificast guys, this is Liam, uh, at Liam Rules on Twitter. Um, I probably should have made sure I knew what I was going to say before I called. I just got really excited this thing existed. But uh, I've been listening to y'all for a little bit, and I specifically have been listening just before I go. Um, I've been asked to guest preach a few times at this church, and guest preaching is kind of weird for me. Um, my wife is a pastor, but uh, I have not really been as active in church. And people come and to me and ask me to, to preach, I guess because I'm pretty good at it. But I'm not always sure what to say. I want to be hospitable, even though I'm, I'm being welcomed into their space. I want to be understanding of that congregation and, and not maybe blow their minds unexpectedly with something that they weren't ready for. On the other hand, I'm going to be myself. I don't know how to not be myself. And oddly enough, it hasn't been that big of a problem uh, in the past. I've managed to share something that I think is real and meaningful without uh, without necessarily upsetting anyone too much. Um, and yet today, uh, today's the Sunday after things in Charlottesville sort of went down. And it's hard to know. Um, to me, it's the least controversial thing I could do, is get up and condemn white supremacy. Uh, and yet here I am going into this rural Pennsylvania church. I don't actually know what they're going to say. I don't know how they're going to respond. My guess is they're not probably going to be blatantly like, oh, wait, no, I love white supremacy. Uh, but I am worried that they're going to be offended or they're going to be fragile. They're going to worry that I'm targeting them unfairly somehow by, by preaching against uh, the oppressive white regime that we live in. Hey, y'all. It's Liam again. Uh, so I went to that church, and I promised the session would be shorter. But basically, I went, and I didn't edit myself, and I preached what I wanted to preach, which, again, preaching is fraught for me, and, and I'm not sure that I really theologically connect with everybody, but, but I, I find something, and I said what I didn't say, and I was honest about the legacy of white supremacy in the church, and I was honest about wanting a different world for my daughter, and all those things, and that I was worried, and I don't know why I was so worried, because uh, it was great, and I was great, and the church was fine, and I don't know, I didn't do a survey, and maybe there are people who were uptight or offended. didn't say anything to me about it. Uh, so why am I afraid? And this is the most important part. I'm also not afraid. Like, I guess what I was more afraid of was being afraid that I would get up in the pulpit and I wouldn't say everything that I wanted to say because I'd be afraid. But when I'm actually in the pulpit, I'm not actually afraid at all. I just say whatever I want. And who gives a fuck? I don't care what they think. I just say it. And I don't know why I thought I was going to be a scary cat. So, uh, anyways, I just thought you should get the follow-ups. That's it. Your show is about me. But, uh, but I think, uh, that idea of, like, well, why are we afraid to say things in the church? I mean, I guess it could have gone terribly, and I could have been 
went out on the rails, but I wasn't. So that's great. Forget about it. This is very good. Um, I like yeah. both of these, actually. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so um, Liam's question was, like, how do you navigate church situations? And uh, I think Liam answers his own question. <laughs> but just like, I don't know, I guess you just do it. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's right. Uh, it's very funny that, uh, first of all, I find it very funny that any pastor would, like, um, ask me for advice. Uh, because I am not one uh, on purpose. <laughs> uh, not a pastor on purpose, that is. I did, though. My first major uh, when I was an undergraduate was youth ministry, so could have been me, but uh, snuck out the back door of that program. Nice! Yeah. Um, Good. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, that's really fascinating. I don't know. I can't imagine having to like come up with a sermon uh, after Charlottesville on Sunday. Um, yeah. Like presumably you would have had something prepared that you thought about already and like worked on, and then and then uh, on Saturday you know, it's all ruined, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, just like all all the shit hits the fan, and you gotta I don't know say something meaningful about something that's like very dangerous to talk about. Um, y- yeah. Yeah. Uh, kudos to you, Liam, for doing it. I guess like that, w- I would have been <laughs> very afraid as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, I had to preach in church one time. Uh, it How wasn't. It, it wasn't great. L- luckily, <laughs> uh, nothing catastrophically bad happened right before I did it, so I could just kind of do my thing. <laughs> Got that going for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. The larger question Liam asked is kind of hard, though. I start. I mean, so okay, he's going to like a rural Pennsylvania church, and like, how do you, how do you, uh, like, be a Christian in those spaces where like, um, white supremacy, um, probably not like, um, where white supremacy probably isn't like, um, overtly sort of the norm, but still like white supremacy right. is is like structurally the norm, um, right. How do you interact with Christians in those spaces? How do you interact with Christians who are more conservative than you? Um, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I'm probably yeah, not very especially good at... if it's uh, especially if it's not your home congregation or something. Um, yeah, because white supremacy is already like uh, it is a feature of Christianity in the United States, not a not a bug. You That's could right. say. Um, yeah. So it's hard to imagine going into a group of Christians that you've never met when Christians statistically all voted for Donald Trump, um, that would be pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess um, taking taking a, a note from Matt Sitman, though, I mean, you can speak a very similar moral language. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, supposedly. Uh, try, trying to draw that common Christian, like moral Christian language out into um, some more radical ends, I think is probably the way to go. Um but still a very hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm curious to hear, Leah mentioned that uh, his wife is a pastor as well, and I am I wonder if she also did a sermon that Sunday and what that would have been like. Uh, I mean, maybe yeah. she didn't, but like, uh, Liam, if you're listening, uh, it would be cool to kind of hear about that, actually. like, I feel like it would be strange to compare notes of being like, what are, what are you going to say tomorrow in the sermon after Charlottesville? That would be a hard thing to sort through together, I would guess. <laughs> yeah. Did you go to church that Sunday after Charlottesville? Uh, I didn't, and it was purely out of, like, I don't know, just not, not feeling up for it. Like, I didn't feel like I was going to have a great time, so slept in that day. Yeah, good choice. Um, I went, and uh, at my church, we always have, like, revolving speakers from the community, and uh, it wasn't a great sermon. 
Yeah. It it like only kind of tangentially touched on the the issues from the day before. Um so I don't know. It's probably a very hard thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough thing. I mean, uh one thing that is both nice and not nice about being Catholic in Canada as an American citizen is like my parish isn't really connected with what's happening in my country. Uh it could be. I mean, there are like there are priests in uh Toronto I know who take a uh, stronger interest in that kind of thing but not at my parish which is like a block away which is why I go there and uh yeah it can just be sort of alienating sometimes when you're like there at mass and nobody's really clued into what's going on and uh you kind of show up and do your thing and go home um I mean the mass is good like I like mass a lot but you know it's just a strange space so how do you navigate I don't know I think like it's important to give yourself permission to like not do it sometimes uh that helps me anyway <laughs> uh like Christianity is really annoying um it's like very good and beautiful and like helpful but also extremely annoying and exhausting <laughs> yeah I don't know um it would be great though to get like other pastors perspectives on things like this i feel like uh like we talked to john thornton jr a long time ago about rod Dreher, and uh i would love to hear what john had to say about charlottesville and his own congregation or uh even like folks who are i don't know trying to figure that out in theology or whatever like uh we get people to talk about things and ideas and issues here but i guess we've never really had anybody talk about their own church life and how their churches are negotiating these kinds of issues or whatnot Introducing the first ever Magnificast Theory Time featuring John Greenaway slash Litcrit Guy. That's the the theme song. Anyways, here's a recording uh, that we did with John a few days ago uh, where we asked him a question. Um, We asked him uh, what Marx's theory of revolution was and... Uh, John gave an answer that was very good. Um, to understand uh, the kind of Marxist conception of revolution, you, are, you kind of first have to grasp that Marx uh, is extremely interested in history and especially in the different phases of how societies develop. There's this great quote from Engels um, where he says that Marx's genius was that he grasped that before... Um, man can practice art, politics, philosophy, or religion, he must first provide food for himself and have somewhere to live. And so everything in uh, Marx's work proceeds from this very simple idea that firstly, material needs determine a lot of kind of social and political relations. Uh, there's this idea that we're taught that history just like kind of happens. They're, they're like great ideas exist in the world, but Marx always grounds all of that in kind of very concrete terms. And his point is that as society develops, there uh, new forms of technology that help us to meet our needs in new ways come into being. So he details like kind of three historical models that we've moved through. Uh, and that is the kind of ancient mode of production where the primary relationship is the master versus the slave. This then shifts into feudal production, where it is uh, the lord controlling the work and the labor of peasants or serfs. And then it moves uh, again forward in history into capitalist production, where you have uh, 
capitalists uh, exploiting the kind of free wage labor of uh, the working class. So why this is important is that um, as technology and the means of meeting our needs more efficiently advances uh, and changes, that will inevitably come into conflict with the ways in which society is currently organized. Um, this is what Marx Eventually, these contradictions will kind of meet until there is the only solution is what Marx calls a revolutionary reconstitution of society. Um, and this is where the idea of revolution comes in. Uh, this, 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 the contradictions of the current arrangement, the current configuration of these economic and productive forces comes into conflict with the ways in which technology and uh labor has advanced so the kind of modern example of this would be uh the idea that at the moment automation could potentially provide everything that we need but at the same time that would render a lot of people unemployed so something has to happen here something has to give on one side of that equation um but here's here's why this this Here's where people kind of sometimes misunderstand what Marx said. Marx said that eventually the contradictions of capitalism would reach a point where it would break down and that we would have uh, communism. Communism would take us beyond capitalism because the forces of technology would eventually be being held back by the way that society is – society and uh, the economy is structured and organized. Um, now, a lot of people take that to mean that Marx thought revolution was inevitable. But that is kind of unfair, I think, uh, and misses a lot of what Marx was actually uh, driving at. Um, what what determines the re revolutionary reconstitution of society is the class struggle. And that is the way in which uh, the proletariat, in this case, is put into conflict with the owners of the means of production. The class struggle in itself is not an inevitable thing. It isn't something that is going to happen. Like it's not a kind of like oncoming uh, apocalyptic end of the world thing. <laughs> um, what is uh, what's important to note is that we kind of have to. It has to be uh, struggled with, and there are there is no guarantees. The class struggle is. Uh, the means by which we can transition society, that we can revolutionize it, that we can remake it into something new. But um, I, what I wanted to do was share a quick quote from Engels, um, who wrote in a letter after Marx's death, um, the economic situation is the basis, the foundation of things, as it were, for the various elements of the superstructure, the political forms of the class struggle and its results uh, also exercise their influence upon the course of, of the historical struggle, and in many cases, preponderate in determining their form. So this idea that, oh, well, uh, communism is eventually going to break through anyway because of the contradictions inherent in capitalism is not true. Engels and Marx knew that the class struggle is impactful, which is why it is so important. Uh, Marx famously wrote that perhaps only in England could a non-violent transition to uh, communism occur because of its well-organized uh, labor movement. 
and it was in labor movements uh, and sort of trade unions and other collective forms that Marx argued that the working class would come to recognize itself not just as a class in itself, but against something else. Um, but whether that revolution, whether that transition to uh, to communism, to going beyond capitalism is possible without violence is something that's much more difficult to answer accurately. How does that kind of work as a brief, off the top of my head, overview yeah, of Marx's revolution? That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, way more articulated than uh, off the top things that we do in every single episode of our podcast. <laughs> yeah, so that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the final thing that I would say that I would want to chip in is to connect this idea of the kind of revolutionary rearticulation of society that Marx writes about with the Christian concepts of metanoia, um, which is usually translated as repentance or as penitence, but I think is much more accurately translated as the, as the remaking of oneself, the remaking of one's behavior, and the remaking of the world. So there is no real... Uh, Marx thought the revolution was historically determined by shifts between productive modes. Uh, Lenin would go further, of course, and say that that revolution could be built with a good vanguard uh, party that would raise the class consciousness of the proletariat. But I would also say that it can be connected to the outworking of Christian life as well. That good good Christianity, Christian discipleship is, is in a sense, about remaking the world, uh, which shares a lot in common, just on a, even on a linguistic level, with the language that Marx and Engels use in the Communist Manifesto. Okay, cool. So uh, that's a lot of very good and well-formulated thoughts on Marx and revolution. And that should give you a pretty good groundwork or at least a good place to start if you've never really thought about revolutions before. Um, there, there you go. Um, so maybe we can think through what John said and like what we know about Marx ourselves uh, in terms of like some objections people have to it. Maybe that's a good way of kind of parsing out um, what's at stake with uh, like understanding revolutions and like why they're important for us does that sound good yeah i think so it does and uh that's what we did last time i think it worked pretty well on the christianity and socialism 101 episode right i think so too um okay so uh just a few moments ago someone actually left a comment on our facebook page um about the last episode we did basically saying <laughs> like um well first of all this person i don't think listened to the episode but if they did then i don't know cool I mean, you can be critical but again keep those to yourself no, just kidding. Um, anyways, this person on Facebook just said literally 30 seconds ago, like, no violence can be justified. Violence is always bad. People are very concerned about violence. Uh, if you listen to the last episode, I feel like we talked about that a lot, but maybe we can talk about it a little bit more. Um, what can we well, say it's about... A, it's interesting to, to ask about it in the context of revolutions in particular, because that's what makes people really uneasy. Yeah. Um, uh, like even if you're for violence and you're not like a strict pacifist or whatever the minute someone's like yeah what about revolution uh most of the time people are like whoa hey don't get carried away here like we all know what happens then and uh the, the thing is we don't we don't know what always happens then so let's talk about that um yeah so violence is bad what do you say matt if someone when you when you're talking to your average joe your average church going joe joseph and uh, he says 
hey, I heard you were a communist. What the heck? Uh, violence is super bad, and uh, revolutions are, are violent, and that's not good. Uh, what do you say to uh, anti-communist Joseph? Uh, I'd say, yeah, man, violence sucks. Like, I'm not a fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, violence isn't cool. Like, I don't like that. I don't like when people get killed or hurt. That's not very fun. Um, but in revolutions, like, it happens. And um, the point... I think isn't to like justify a revolution as good or bad, but at the same time, uh, you have to look at that and and think like, will less violence be done after the old society is pushed away? <laughs> Probably. Right. Um, I mean, capitalism is a system that is built on a certain type of structural violence and, and exclusion. So, um, would a revolution uh, to abolish uh, capitalism be violent? Like, yeah, probably. Um, does that is that violence justified uh, if it brings about a better world? Yeah, probably. I don't know. Um, I don't want anyone to die ever, and we could just all live immortally uh, forever in robot bodies. But um, I don't know. I think that sometimes violence is justified. It's <laughs> uh, my new concept album. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> violence is justifiable when it's on the side of the oppressed, and it makes life better for everybody. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, kind of flipping the question back, I guess, is important to say, well, if you think violence is bad, then what are you going to do about all the violence that happens every single day by virtue of the system that we currently have? Yeah. Um, that's a really helpful way to go about it. Uh, but one other interesting thing is, like, just pulling the reins a little bit on the assumption that, um, like, revolutions are qualified by, you know, the amount of violence that is required to bring them about or something. Because, um, like... Like, the Bolshevik Revolution is a really famous example because it's, like, surprisingly bloodless at first. Um, and it only gets, like, really intense when uh, there's a civil war in Russia because basically all these, like, bourgeois countries start sending money to Russia because they don't want to deal with proletarian revolutions in their own countries, so you got to ruin it somewhere else. Um, but that's the thing, right, is, uh, like... A lot of the leaders of the Russian Revolution were basically uh, elected by workers' councils, and people were, like, on board, and they're like, yeah, this is what we actually want. Like, most of us want a better life, and uh, that that was, like, a really interesting process. So, you know, one question is just asking, like, why do some revolutions get violent? And uh, in a case like Russia, at least um, as it spun itself out, like, it got violent because uh, some people didn't want to give up their privilege. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um I mean, and, and like you said, too, like violence is at the bottom of a lot of things in, a, in the capitalist political economy. And we don't seem to be bothered by violence in that context, right? Like the violence of everyday life we ignore, um, probably because we don't experience it. Or if we do, we can contextualize it or something as like not violence. Only when it comes to like the self-determination of um, proletarians uh, do people get really upset about violence. Yeah, it, it's also really interesting because like... Most people, uh, even if they don't know that they do, they implicitly accept the assumption that, uh, like, you can a society can distance itself from its violent beginnings. Like, if you're an American citizen and you think that things are going okay, uh, well, like, I hate to break it to you, but your country is based on like a violent uh, war that like decided they didn't want to do something. They didn't want to be, you know, British subjects anymore. So they had a whole violent revolution and like people, you know died and like fought and all that kind of stuff and now here we are like because of that um 
So I don't know. It's not like those things should be celebrated, even though the country does celebrate it once a year, every year. Um, but nevertheless, like people uh, have found a way to, you know, understand that violence, separate themselves from it a little bit, and, uh, and nevertheless enjoy the fruits of that like completely different society. Isn't it kind of weird though, too, that like I mean, speaking of celebrating revolutions, I mean, the United States is a country that's founded in a revolution, and no one gets like uh, like bent out of shape about that. Yeah, exactly. In fact, they get bent out of shape if you don't like it. Yeah, I know, right? Like, the 4th of July is specifically about that revolution, and we're supposed to be patriotic on that day. But people, you know, that revolution is good, it's contextualized, it's a long time ago. Um, But it also, it was actually super violent. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, it's also interesting the way that the history of revolutions get told, right? Because, like, the American Revolution, pretty good. Uh, in most people's minds, French Revolution kind of okay, a little bit scary, but like worked out for the better in the end. Uh, and then like nobody talks about like the Haitian Revolution. Like if you're yeah. a black slave and you decide like you don't want things the way that they are and you succeed, like well, I don't know, we we don't like that revolution. Like that's bad news. Um, and that's kind of a crazy thing, you know, that uh, revolutions where bourgeois white people decide what they want to do and then continue to exploit other people. Like those revolutions are fine, um, but revolutions where like oppressed people actually try to do something for themselves like those are held to kind of impossible ethical standards yeah that's right um quick side note um i encourage all of our listeners to go check out the podcast revolutions uh it's like a history podcast about revolutions um (laughs) they have an entire they have an entire series that's about the haitian revolution and uh it's super interesting and really good um but quick disclaimer it is a history podcast and it is very boring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't but, know. The Barricades episode is really fun. Yeah, it is. It's super fun. Um, I think they're all great, but also, like, I don't know. I have a it PhD is like listening to like someone reading a things. paper. Yeah, it is. It is. It's good, though. Uh, Revolutions, uh, it's good. They. It's Every episode is good. It's all super interesting. Um, there's, like, an entire series about Bolivar, too, that's really cool. Um, yeah, that's right. Dude, it's sweet. It's a good podcast. It's not even like leftist. It's just like history stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. So one of the thing I I always think about this when I think about violence and revolution in particular. Uh, Franz Fanon. Who, if you don't know who Franz Fanon is, he's a uh, one of the like primary decolonial theorists of the last century. Uh, in his book, The Wretched of the Earth, he has a a chapter called On Violence right up at the beginning. And uh, I'm always struck by, I think it's like the first or second page, he says that uh, decolonizing is about the idea that um, the last will be first. And I, like basing it in that kind of extremely Christian, um, you know, maxim or axiom or whatever is uh, kind of an interesting way to think about what revolutions are trying to do. Like they're trying to build uh, the kingdom of God on earth for a second. And that means that like the people who've been on the bottom, they've got to be uh, raised up, you know, just like um that's like a common trope in biblical literature yeah that's cool um that's actually a really interesting way of putting it um quick book recommendation uh read wretched of the earth uh second quick book recommendation um there's this really great book from julia Kristeva, who's like uh she's french and um i don't know does a lot of stuff with psychoanalysis uh she has a book called revolt she said and the beginning is like an etymology of the word revolution and uh it's really interesting lots of cool stuff going on there but one of the um one of the etymologies she pulls out about revolution is about like um it's sort of like the turn like the turning against 
um, or like the sort of like revolution in the sense of like you know one revolution of like a wheel or something going around um and it has that same kind of connotation though where like you know the the end like one part of the wheel is now on top whereas the other end of the wheel is on bottom um so that's cool (laughs) yeah it is it is cool (laughs) um okay so like i feel like the uh violent revolution is bad argument is just generally not great not from your average joe anyway um it's just there more, are... morally inconsistent it doesn't it's, it's yeah. not a consistent worldview to think that revol- like that revolutionary violence is always bad or something I, I mean if you're a strict pacifist i guess fine you can probably make some kind of claims there but you have to figure out what to do with the rev- like the violence of everyday life i guess yeah exactly i mean i have respect for pacifists who at least uh trouble the waters a little bit and they're like well the, the american revolution was bad too um, and you know you can ask all kinds of like critical questions about that, but at least it's like a, a principled thing uh, yeah. that people understand is is frustrating and hard and like stupid and difficult. Right. In in the way that like all theory is stupid and difficult. Um, but like whereas the uh, reactionary yeah, like, like liberal uh, opposition to like all violence is just bad because like I don't know think about the civil rights movement or something. Um, so yeah, like exactly. the, the uncritical rejection of violence, like the dude on Facebook, um, or whatever. Yeah. Bad news. Don't Bad do that. Bad news. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so another objection, at least like I've heard in kind of everyday life or conversation, is, uh, well, real change takes a lot of time. Uh, you're not going to change everything overnight, so, like, revolution is bad news. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's something that uh, I often hear from peers or people who, like, find out that you're a communist or something like that. Uh, what do you think about that, Matt? Does real change take time? What does uh, does revolution take time? What's all that? What's all that about? Uh, it's such a, like, a weird thing to say. Like I don't know the uh, unfolding of history. It does occur in time, and it, it takes exactly <laughs> as much time as it ought to. <laughs> I don't know. Like what a weird thing to say. Like yeah, I mean time passes. Things happen. Uh, change happens sequentially, one after another. Uh, yeah, real change does take time. Uh, revolutions also take time. It's, uh, when does a revolution start? Like, when does a revolution end? Does it end? Who knows, right? Um, uh, this is something we talked about last week with that, uh, the Richard Gilmanopolsky article book. Um, but, like, uh, protests, riots, uprisings, revolutions, they don't happen inside of a, like, a bubble. They don't happen, like, very frictionlessly. They've, the... They are the um, they are the very patient summation of uh, of systemic and unbearable violence over time. Um, here, here's a quote from Marx uh, that I think is probably good that we can mention here. Uh, so, in um, an essay from Marx and Engels called "The Holy Family," um, Marx and Engels say this: In the life conditions of the proletariat. All the life conditions of modern society are contained in their most inhuman acuteness because man himself is lost in it. So the point here is that like um, revolutions don't just like occur. They don't just occur when people think like, oh, man, time for a revolution. Better get in the streets or whatever. Uh, revolutions happen um, predicated on like the the most inhuman uh aspects of of modern society right it's like the summation of all of this like bad exploitative stuff that capitalism does to workers um and then like revolution happens when like they can't take it anymore and you have to do something else um right 
To continue this quote even a little bit further from the same essay, the impossibility of avoiding or prettifying any longer the absolutely imperative misery, the practical expression of necessity, he is also directly driven to rebellion against all of this inhumanity. Right, This inhumanity of capitalism is what drives the proletariat against capitalism itself. Like, um, So it's, the, it's the, again, the summation of all of these things over periods of time that make a revolution happen. So um, right. not only does change take a long time, but revolutions take a, to- a long time. And like we said last week, revolutions or like uprisings, they might actually be very patient. People have waited a long time to get this um, this stuff out, you know? Yeah, I think that's the other part is uh, the politics of time. Like, some people don't have time. Um, it's really easy to say real change takes time when that change doesn't really affect you immediately in the way that you need it to. Uh, but it's a lot harder when, you know, uh, you are, for example, a person of color in the United States, and it's likely that, um, you're probably going to get incarcerated or, you know, shot uh, just on like a routine event. Like you don't have time. Uh, that's not really like a thing that is fair. Uh, like I always think of the, the obvious one is Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, comments about white moderates, right? Where mm. um, it's like, well, yeah, uh, we don't have time for that. Uh, we don't have time for the moderate change uh, and those kinds of reforms. It's not strategically useful. Uh, and you can you can say that forever and uh the question is like yeah but when are you gonna do something right and that's when you kind of make an intervention um and i think that's just like an important point like you can't really say uh well real real change takes time doesn't happen overnight and that's why you know the the intense gradualism of liberalism is okay uh like that's ignoring all the people who actually are getting run over every day by it like doesn't doesn't the gradualism of liberalism seem like the most hateful ideology you could possibly tell somebody like absolutely it's literally it's like saying that revolution you know revolutions oh man that won't work you should just wait for real change because things happen just incrementally slowly over time like you're literally asking people to like to shut up and suffer like oh man you know you could be violent right now but you could also just stop talking and like and just like suffer (laughs) right like sorry man that's your lot in life to like live a really terrible crappy life like that's just yeah, the way it is. Yeah, you got born too early. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, liberals, don't at me about this because uh, this is so dumb and wrong and you shouldn't say this to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It also reminds me, uh, Walter Benjamin has this quote somewhere. I can't, It's escaping me right now. But um, he says, uh, like, revolution isn't like a runaway train. It's actually uh, hitting the brake really hard on the runaway train that yeah. is like global capitalism. And I think yeah. that is a very important metaphor for the left. Uh, yo, and we can't even mention the word train without saying Paul Virilio. What's up? Um, hey. <laughs> hey, Paul Virilio. Virilio horns. Virilio horns. <laughs> very, very slow air horns. Um, <laughs> That's right. Right. Uh, like, um, revolutions aren't the thing that are going too fast. It's capitalism that goes too fast, right? It's like the the extreme breakneck speed that capitalism operates at that causes so much problem in the first place. Um, yeah it's like a like marx and engels say in the manifesto right that the bourgeois class they're kind of the real revolutionary class yeah Uh, they just keep creating these material conditions that uh, regularly redistribute whatever's happening in society in ways that aren't necessarily good or smart okay so i think (laughs) those those are some good objections uh or or wait or places to start kind of interrogating the idea of revolution 
Um, it seems for Christianity, I mean, for Christians, okay, like um, if you're skeptical of violence, like good, you probably should be. Um, at the same time, it seems like there are some places uh, where violence can be justified, and I think revolutions are probably one of them. Um, also, so, uh, what, one yeah. like uh, footnote, though, is I think it's important to mention that um, like communism and socialism, there's nothing about those ideologies that necessitate violence uh, yeah, or that's even true. violent revolutions. Uh, in fact, like Marx himself says that it, in the United States and England, and he says maybe Holland uh, at the time, <laughs> he says that uh, uh, there could have been a, a nonviolent transition to communism. And, you know, it's kind of a throwaway remark, but it's one that a lot of Marxists know because it's a very important point um, that, like, yeah, Marx thinks it's very likely that you're going to have to have revolutions all over the place, but he leaves the door open for assuming that there could be other kinds of changes. But the real the real uh, temptation, I guess, to avoid is to use that as a, a door that swings wide open to reformism and gets you out of revolutionary commitments. Because um, at the end of the day, like... The idea is you would have to find a nonviolent way to transition from an economy that is completely enshrined on the entire planet right now. Uh, and that's like really hard, hard work. <laughs> right. I mean, the reason that Marx thinks that um, like revolution or like uh, a violent revolution isn't necessary in England is because there's like strong trade unions or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, liberals, if you are afraid of revolution or you don't want them, I don't know, I guess you just have to unionize. Like that's really the only solution, right? <laughs> like um, <laughs> if you don't want a violent revolution, then you need to uh, find ways for um, transition like, yeah, to give, to give like workers a... more power. Yeah, and that's a perennial Marxist problem, but not one that Marxists haven't dealt with. Like, uh, I always think about Rosa Luxemburg, um, who famously wrote this essay on reformism and revolution, where she says, uh, yeah, like, if people make reforms that uh, benefit working people's lives, of course, revolutionaries should support that. Like, we don't want life to be worse off for people. Uh, so if liberals are, like, going to throw the working class a bone, then take it. Um, but her whole point is... Uh, use those as stepping stones to an actual revolutionary future uh don't see them as victories that's like the one thing that separates for example i think democrats in the united states from an actual leftist movement um like they're so content to celebrate something like the uh like affordable health care act or whatever um and it's like that's not a victory that's like one tiny thing that saved some like significant people's lives and uh like did not deliver like we're not in a revolutionary situation so like don't be proud of it just be like uh wow that like it's a good thing we we put like a tiny bit of the break on just that <laughs> yeah that's right um i guess like uh like the the point that i'm trying to make is like most people don't hate revolution per se they just hate socialism uh like no matter how you get there violent or nonviolent, um that's the the thing that people are upset about and it's just important to disentangle that because revolution is like a necessary part of marxist theory um it's not a uh, thing that Marxist theory is reducible to per se, um, but nevertheless, like socialism, uh, that's that's where the key arguments take place. <laughs> On that point about uh, people hating revolution or socialism, that makes me think of a quote again from uh, our current favorite book, uh, "Specters of Revolt" by Richard Gilman Opalski. <laughs> <laughs> I have not told him that we've talked about him three times now. Probably this podcast. <laughs> I'll send an email. Um, anyways, uh, this is a this is from the the chapter that he wrote uh, called "The Ferguson Revolt Did Not Take Place." Uh, it's in the article we posted last week. It's in the tiny letter. You can look back to it. Anyways, here's the quote: 
Those who condemn the revolts actually love them because they get to condemn a violence that justifies the violence they defend, the violence they love. Critics of revolt do not, therefore, fear the violence, but rather the transformative potentialities of revolt, its abolition, uh, its abolitionist and creative content. Their That's wager good. and hope is that nothing they love will be abolished, that the present state of things will be defended against every revolt. And if the existing order is maintained against revolt, as it often is, that existing order will be haunted by the specters of future revolt. Okay, so this is like a really good quote because I think it exposes a few things about uh, revolt. First of all, they always come back. Um, that's a pretty important point. Again and again, um, yeah. right? Like uh, the uprising in Ferguson is connected to the uprising in Baltimore. We talked about that last week. Uh, but that uh, people, um, they love to hate the violence because it like it, um, it gives them something again, like to fight against, something to complain about. Yeah. Um, a way to justify the continuation of the everyday violence of capitalism. Um, people love that. <laughs> yeah, it's like on Twitter watching all the uh, intentional centrists, the alt center, if yeah, you will. That's right. Um, like they coined this term, the alt left, right? Precisely so that they can uh, call themselves something else and different and kind of build this whole identity uh, around, you know, escaping whatever the problems of violence in their own society the problems of violence that are raised by white supremacy and by resistance to it um you can't have the center without the hatred of the left yeah i mean speaking of uh memes and the memification of uh i guess moral sentiment uh liberals uh liberals hate socialism more than fascists yeah exactly yeah the fact that uh even when you're facing down fascists in a discourse or something or on the ground or whatever uh the fact that like that's exactly the time that so many centrists think that it's especially important to distinguish themselves from the left is exactly what's wrong with all of politics (laughs) okay so we've covered a lot of ground in this episode we've gone from user submitted content itunes reviews questions about ethics what do you do in church and uh finally some like really good stuff from john greenaway and uh some other really good stuff from the equally good philosopher Karl marx um equally good as john greenaway that's what i'm trying to say um <laughs> yeah cool uh, it's hard to do that's no small task to be as good as john greenaway so no ki- kudos to you marx yeah no kidding you you, you're there you've arrived um if you can, uh, you should support John, uh, John the Lit Crit Guy Greenaway on Twitter or on uh, uh, what what's the other website where you can buy him coffee? <laughs> uh, I don't know, but he does have a Patreon account. Yeah, he does. He does have a Patreon account. We'll post some links in places you can support him and give him uh, money and buy him coffee because uh, if anyone deserves it, it's probably him. Um, so you should really do that. Okay, um, well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Magnificast. Uh, as usual, uh, subscribe to our podcast. Uh, give us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Um, hashtag us. Help build our brand. Uh, give us some good SEO. I don't know what any of those words are really uh, really mean, but do them, do them <laughs> for us. <laughs> uh, also, uh, give us a call, especially if you're a pastor. I don't know. Call yeah. us and set us straight about what's going on at church. Please. That would be helpful. Tell us how to do it. Tell us how we do this church thing. <laughs> Tell us how to uh, also just, you know, 
better help you communize your church and then you can like pastor us it'll be a totally mutual uh, beneficial symbiotic relationship here <laughs> yeah that sounds good alright thanks for listening they will swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no dam between us and our lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early Besides what else are you gonna do? Is we kissed in the alley by the Michigan theater Fall snow was blowing in the lights of the downtown Saw a spark in your eyes, I just spoke it Said we're gonna turn this whole place upside down